Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Memorial Day, May 25th, Monday. What's up, guys? How are you doing? Hope you're hanging out, having a great weekend, great long weekend if you're in the US. So today I wanted to do something different. Obviously, it's a special day, it's a holiday, and I thought it would be cool because there's so much content that goes uh, through the breakdown, right? We do five shows a week, tons of interviews. I thought that it might be fun to actually look back across the interviews from April and May to pull out some of the highlight clips, the most interesting things, right? The statements that had stuck with me even weeks later. So what I'm going to try is a type of episode, and if you guys like this, I'll do this maybe every month or every couple months, uh, where I'm just curating my favorite or some of my favorite clips and conversations from the, the past month uh, or the past month or two. So I'm going to kick that off right now. I'm just going to go uh, chronologically for lack of having a, a clear narrative that I'm trying to push. Uh, so hope you enjoy it and let me know on Twitter at NLW or at Breakdown NLW. Uh, if you like this, definitely hit me up so I know to do more of it. Cheers, guys. We're kicking it off with Peter Zayan, one of the most interesting thinkers on geopolitics and the changing shape of the global order, uh, basically in the world. We talked about a huge number of topics relating to the acceleration of the withdrawal of the U.S. from the global order that it created in its own image. And we talked about how the coronavirus had accelerated a number of those transitions in a way that was likely to be really painful. So we've got um, two overlapping things that have nothing to do with one another that are kind of crashing together at the same time, just purely coincidentally, that are ending the era of globalization for good. Uh, step one is geopolitical. So at the end of World War II, the Americans were there on the plains of Northern Europe facing down the Soviets and realizing that they had no chance in that fight. We needed allies that would be willing to intersperse themselves between us and the Soviets, uh, and that basically could not be done if you want to occupy them. So what we did is we bribed them. We basically paid everyone to be on our side. Uh, we created a global structure that allowed anyone to go out without need of naval cover, purchase any sort of raw commodity, bring it home, metabolize it into a finished good, sell it within their own market, or more likely export it to the United States, and export their way back to being a first world country. Uh, it was the first time it had ever been done. Uh, in the past, if you were a naval power, you used that to forge your own empire. And for this time, the United States used its naval power to help everybody else recover. Uh, it worked great, and it eventually it did defeat the Soviet Union. But when we got to 1992 and the Soviet Union had collapsed, we never bothered to kind of reset our foreign policy for the new age. So we kept providing all of these strategic goods for the global commons so that the world could grow, but the U.S. no longer got any sort of security in response. 30 years later, we've gone through four presidents, Clinton, W., Obama, and now Trump, with decreasing interest in maintaining that system. So it was always going to collapse under whoever we elected uh, three years ago. Uh, it's just a question of how organized that collapse was going to be. Okay, so that's piece one. So the U.S. is just done. And without the United States, there is no power, there's no coalition of powers that can hold it together. Piece two is demographics. People in their 20s act different from people in their 40s, act different from people in their 60s. 
when you're in the 20s, it's all about consumption. You're raising kids, you're going to college, you're buying homes. When you're in your 40s and your 50s, it's all about the savings. The kids have moved out, the house has been paid down, you're saving for retirement. And then when you're in your 60s, it's about whittling away at those savings uh, and basically just kind of idling away and being a net consumer of capital. Well, global birth rates started dropping in the 1960s and really accelerated in the 70s and 80s. So we are at this weird moment in time demographically that's never happened before where we have very few young workers doing the consumption. We have a lot of mature workers who are doing savings and we have a rising number of retirees who are consuming. But in, within the next few years, and it depends upon where you are, it's one to six years based on the country, the world jumps from a bunch of mature workers to a bunch of retirees. So at this moment in history, capital supplies have never been higher. And very soon, the capital will go away and the retirees will basically consume it all. And we have to move to a completely different economic model that is not based on consumption or trade. So both of these were coming to a head anyway. Both of them were gonna crash into the system we understand sometime in this decade. What coronavirus has done is fast forward it. Because if we are offline as, a, as an economy for the better part of a year, there is not enough time to get through this debt overhang that we're gonna to have to set up the supply chains in the way that they used to be in the aftermath. So we have probably just ended the greatest expansion in American history, the greatest expansion in human history. And we're not gonna see anything like it again in our lives. On April 6th, I spoke with my friend Emerson Sparts. Emerson is a really interesting thinker, a really diverse thinker. He's been spending the last 20 or 30 years really thinking about viral systems and how information is distributed across the internet, starting when he dropped out of middle school to create MuggleNet, which became the world's biggest Harry Potter fan site. We talked about the second order effects of coronavirus and why we were living through a moment of punctuated equilibrium. And yeah, so we're going through one of those periods right now. Um, and so like if, if you literally just plot out how much area there is under the curve in these periods of punctuated equilibrium, like all the stuff happens in these brief windows. So that means it's very exciting if you're the kind of person who um, likes to, uh, you know, if you're looking for leverage, basically. And, and I, I, I think of myself as basically being a, uh, a, a hunter for the, the mother of all leverage points. Um, so I just spend a ton of time researching a wide variety of different um, uh, subject areas and topics and industries, and I just look for the the you know the, the 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 white whale of mispricings, right? And so these are the windows where you know you can actually you know you you could actually beat the market because uh, there 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 is no smartest guys in the room who have everything figured out um, because too much is happening too quickly. Um, uh, and I say beat the market in a more metaphorical way. But anyway, so so there's this window where tons of stuff are happening. Um, nobody has basically the, the better your your mental model stack is, uh, the more clear your picture of reality is. And um, I've, I've spent a lot of time basically bulking up like crazy to build out this, um, this stack, um, just like you would if you were a weightlifter, right? Like building those muscles um, to be able to see the world more clearly in situations like this. So just for, for fun, um, I and uh, my friend Michael Simmons, um, we just started like writing down tons of second order effects uh, of, of coronavirus um, because I'd spent a bunch of time talking to other entrepreneurs and kicking around ideas. And uh, I mean, the amount of content that's coming online every day right now, I mean, all of humanity is working on this <laughs> to some extent. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's, uh, you know, people, everyone in every industry likes to say that their industry has this, you know, tidal wave of, of information just flooding in. Uh, but those now look like trickles compared to what's happening right now <clears throat> um, as humanity has its, its uh, collective sites set. Uh, on, on a, a single common enemy for the first time in history. 
On April 17th, I talked with Jared Dillian. Jared has been writing a set of really interesting essays around how people are losing faith in money based on the Fed's uh, rampant actions right now. And we talked in this context about why corporations shouldn't be buying back their own stock, something that is front and center for a huge number of people as it relates to uh, what the company's obligations should be if they took those government loans. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think a lot of things. Um First of all, we've known for a long time that buybacks were the source of most of the gains in the market. Torsten Slock at Deutsche Bank put out some charts. This was back in like 16 or 17 and showed that pretty much all the gains in the stock market were coming from buybacks. Okay. Now, um, and a lot of people, I was opposed to buybacks on the grounds that corporations trade their stocks incredibly badly. They buy them back on the highs, and then inevitably something bad happens. The stock goes down, and they have to issue more stock on the lows. So they're buying stocks high, and they're, and they're selling stocks low, and they destroy value all the time. And IBM is the perfect example of this. I mean, before the crisis, IBM had $140 billion market cap, and they had spent $160 billion on buybacks, more than the entire company was worth. So I think the political blowback here you know, it was funny, like AOC had a tweet on this and, um, you know, about the airlines, about the airline buybacks, how they spent 96% of their free cash flow on buybacks. And now they were getting a bailout. And I, I, I looked at the tweet and I was like, son of a bitch. Like, I actually agree 100% <laughs> with AOC on this. Like, she, she absolutely nailed it. And, um, you know, a lot of the buybacks were, you know, explicitly for the purpose of, enriching management for sure you know so i think i think the smart thing to do would be like if if we were in uh, a 1980s reagan volcker world we would eliminate taxes on dividends and make dividends and buybacks equal from a tax treatment standpoint so then so then companies would pay more dividends but really what where we are right now is where we're moving towards uh getting rid of buybacks and also discouraging companies from paying dividends, anything that rewards shareholders at all. If you look at dividend swaps in the United States, uh, we're projecting that dividends are going to be down 40% in a year. So it's actually not just buybacks, it's dividends as well. On April 21st, I talked to Joe McCann, who has had a huge number of different roles across the crypto and tech world. Uh, we talked about financial engineering and why financial engineering creates and is creating such huge problems for the real economy. At the same time in the 1980s, we started to see uh, an uptick in the fascination of financial engineering. Um, there's a woman that wrote a book called Makers and Takers, which I recommend to people all the time. It, it, it spells out how the financialization of America has fundamentally changed corporate America and, and incentives around it. Uh, and I kind of dive into a couple of things in the piece that, that spell out why the dismantling of you know, trade uh, international trade barriers coupled with this uh, financial engineering has created uh, what I see as uh, potentially, you know, devastating uh, imp implications for U.S. trade and uh, ultimately supply chain management, manufacturing creation, and 
finally, innovation. And what is financial engineering? So I'll give you an example. Um, there are all kinds of unique ways that uh, a CFO at a Fortune 500 company can um, calculate their earnings or their revenue or do certain things to tweak you know, capitalization rates or utilization rates and, and, and change the way that the numbers ultimately work out. Um, that's, that's kind of like a tactical way of doing financial engineering. The, the other ways of doing financial engineering or the incentives around it are anything we can do to grow the stock price. And if you grow the stock price by doing things like laying off, you know, tens of thousands of workers or um, shuffling money around, as opposed to investing in research and development or, or capital expenses, uh, you can absolutely, in fact, increase the price of the stock, but you're not actually doing anything uh, long term to build kind of an innovative or or sustainable business. And I use GE and Jack Welch as an example because the Wall Street Wall Street's sort of media arm, whether it's you know Bloomberg, CNBC, Financial Times, Barrons, and I'm not calling them out as bad actors, but this is the cohort of folks that dominate financial news. Uh, they actually have held Jack Welch in such high esteem as this incredible CEO who who created so much value for General Electric. And unfortunately, that's just simply not true. What he did is he created value for the shareholders. He 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 uh, caused GE's market cap to swell to $400 billion. But the way he did that was not by investing in R&D or CapEx. In fact, he reduced it. Um, he also fired 112,000 employees within his first five years. And the majority of the market cap for GE actually came from its financial services arm, GE Capital, which I believe peaked in uh, 2000 at a make, making up something along the lines of $96 billion uh, worth of their market cap. So the, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that for folks like GE are now suffering because instead of focusing on the long-term and investing for innovation and new capabilities, they decided to shuffle money around in this unique sort of financial wizardry, if you will, to prop up the share price. And that coupled with uh, this kind of um, this, this move away from relying on cheap labor and services outside of the United States is one of the reasons why I lead into this thought of, well, this is going to have to change. We're going to actually have to treat not only um, uh, the impacts of things like share buybacks that artificially inflate the price of a stock, but also things like, hey, if we're reliant on our pharmaceuticals to come out of a place like, I don't know, China, that's probably a national security interest that we should actually look deeper into. On April 22nd, I had a total barn burner of an episode, which was Luke Grauman explaining the basic entire system of the global monetary system and how we got to where we are now. In this clip, he talks about how we won the Cold War when we tied the U.S. dollar to oil and got an unassailable advantage through doing that. We need to go back in time and, and, and understand why this system evolved. So if we go back to at the end of World War II, at Bretton Woods, uh, they, there, were, there were two options. There was John Maynard Keynes uh, proposed something called the Bancor, which was a neutral settlement asset that floated in all currencies and would have basically 
prevented systemic deficits and surpluses from building up over time that we have since seen because we didn't go with the Bancor. We went with uh, a, a proposal from the United States as voiced by Harry Dexter White, which was the dollar is the center of the system. The dollar's pegged to gold at $35 an ounce and everything else is then tied to the dollar. And it provided the US what uh, de Gaulle called exorbitant privilege. Uh, and that system worked at first. It came under stress because of the dollar peg and the US's spending in Vietnam and uh, the Great Society spending by Johnson. By 1971, it was clear to everybody that the, the valuation, even though the US had written the dollar down against gold from 35 to 42 an ounce um, uh, in, I want to say, 68 or 69, but at any rate, the system was strained, the peg was the weak link. Everybody knew the US owed way more money than it could satisfy with the gold we had. And so our choices were, number one, devalue the dollar significantly against gold to basically take that gold backing up to uh, a level requisite to reestablish confidence in the dollar and in the Bretton Woods system, or close the gold window, default on the whole system and move to something else. And we chose the latter. We, again, we can discuss was that the right thing or not? But the key was we, we went, we closed the gold window. So now you have a global reserve currency, the dollar, with effectively no backing. And so then we moved to this petrodollar system where what we effectively did was replace the gold backing of the dollar with oil backing. And to do that, you needed the price of oil to be higher, to basically create more dollar liquidity, to effectively increasingly, you know, to, to, to make oil big enough to back the dollar uh, effectively. And again, here too, I don't moralize on why this happened or was it a good or bad thing. The reality is, is in 1971, the United States was not exactly winning the Cold War. Uh, it was neck and neck. And what this system allowed us to do was uh, print dollars for oil. And while the Soviets had to actually lift oil out of the ground to achieve those same dollars. And so basically once the system got set up, once the Saudis sort of enforced this by saying they would only price their oil in dollars, we won the Cold War. It just hadn't been marked to market yet because we were printing money for oil and the Soviets had to dig it out or pump it out of the ground. On May 1st, I talked to Danielle DiMartino Booth, a former Fed insider who has become one of the most thoughtful critics of the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve system as a whole. The Federal Reserve Act, I'm going to get a little I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit in the weeds here, but it's necessary. Love it. Love it. Uh, the Federal Reserve Act uh, explicitly pre precludes the Fed from taking on individual company risk and and any kind of corporate risk. And it takes on uh, and it is not allowed to extend credit in any way to insolvent firms. So uh, in turn, I don't know if anybody can, can remember the Enron saga, but, uh, but Enron, WorldCom, a lot of companies had off balance sheet vehicles that allowed them to really monkey with their accounting. And that is what the Fed has done. The, there are special purpose vehicles that have been set up at the Treasury Department, and it is through those vehicles that the Fed is able to provide financing and funding to corporate uh, to the corporate bond market, uh, to the high yield bond market, uh, potentially to the municipal bond market. There's been yet another facility set up to reach out to uh, to, to, to municipalities that are in, that are in need of a lifeline, 
And uh, these are, again, an express violation of the Federal Reserve Act, but by the virtue of setting up entities at the Treasury Department, it's now an arm's length transaction, if you will. By the same token, the Treasury Department has control, if you will, if you take it to the extreme uh, over what the Federal Reserve uh, funds going forward. So we have, we, and by extension, the, the, the Treasury Department is, is answerable, that they answer to the administration. And the Federal Reserve is supposed to be, by its very, uh, by, by the law, an independent and apolitical institution. And that violates this. The fact that the Fed is getting off on a technicality because it's not technically holding, let's say, a corporate bond on its balance sheet, but rather offloading it onto the Treasury's balance sheet where any first losses are going to be absorbed by taxpayers uh, is extremely problematic. And when you consider that that the administration could potentially be in charge of, of allocating <clears throat> financing and funding to companies, uh, you know, it's enough to make, at least in my case, it's enough to make my hair get set on fire. Support for this podcast and this message come from ErisX. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure, whether you're looking to power a payments application or issue digital assets like stable coins or digital dollars. Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Over the course of the last month, we've been doing a special documentary-style series called Money Reimagined that is all about the future, the battle for the future of money. Uh, episode one was all about the dollar and its role in the world. Episode two was all about the contenders, whether the euro, a Chinese digital yuan, or the libra might actually have a chance of competing with the dollar on the global stage. In this clip, Neil Ferguson, one of our featured guests, talked about why we might be moving, in fact, back to a multipolar, multi-currency world. Some of the greatest theorists about money, Hayek, for example, Friedman, thought it better for there to be multiple competing currencies rather than a single global standard. And there were plenty of periods in history when that was the case. There were multiple currencies in, for example, 17th century Europe. And there were, in fact, many different forms of payment across the United States in the 19th century. Standardization of money came relatively late to the world. It began with the British gold standard, which by around 1900 was a global standard, pegging currencies to a specific quantity of gold. I think one of the lessons of history is that with globalization comes a tendency for a particular currency to become the number one dominant currency for transactions, for trade, for international reserves. In the 19th century, it was the British pound. In the 20th century, it became the US dollar. And a great question to ask is, globalization enters this phase of crisis. Will there be some other transition from the dollar? 
to another currency? Or could we see a reversion to a multipolar, multi-currency world of the sort that we've seen in previous eras? Support for this podcast and this message come from Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. Jeff Booth has a fascinating thesis. In his estimation, the economy is being shaped by two competing forces. On the one hand, the force of technology rot deflation, making things cheaper. On the other, inflationary economic policy that is keeping and is designed to keep things more expensive, particularly assets more expensive. In this clip from May 14th, Jeff talks about how Keynes thought 70 years ago, 80 years ago, that because of technology, we'd only have to work 15 hours a week at this point. Okay, I'll tie this back to uh, John Maynard Keynes. A lot of people talk about it negatively uh, now and everything else, but I think his policies are being manipulated right now. And and so so he, he was, governments should step in in soft times and then repay in, in good times. And and he also believed he wrote a he wrote an article or he wrote a paper in 1930 saying the economic uh, the economic possibilities of our grandchildren, and in it he forecasted I think it was a 13 hour work week today where we are today. Um, looking at what was happening in the kind of eightfold or or, or more that, that you'd have to have with technology from that time and 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 saying what 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 would that look like. And for a long time, we were actually tracking towards that. And we were tracking, ironically, till 1971. Um, we had a 38-hour work week. Um, and then it, then after the U.S. went off the gold reserve, it started to change. Now you needed two incomes to support the same thing. And, that, and, and you started to, and it started to get more and more further and further away from that ideal. So a very small percentage of the people live that they don't have to work their assets are so 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 high their revenue is so high from rent seeking on those assets and they don't have to so a small portion of the population has had that because we've manipulated currency so that some people are enjoying the gains and most people are not that's really what's what's happened um and 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 it's getting and it's gotten worse every year uh, since so when you started it it was a tiny little bit nobody would notice now where we are um, it's a lot and and so if in the last 20 years 185 trillion dollars of stimulation to produce 46 trillion dollars of economic growth and so you can see it really clearly by the way that's pre-covid imagine what it looks like now right but it it looks like so now if you just follow the technology doubling and effectively the productivity gains doubling. That means you have to double the debt to remain even. And now you're getting to a debt that uh, the debt level that is unsustainable. It's, it's impossible to pay back. And it's not necessarily the debt. It's debt that you can, can't pay back. So you have to do artificial bailouts and everything else um, of that. So you create a 
a perverse incentive structure that creates the debt in the first place. On May 20th, I was joined by Lynn Alden, who really understands and can speak to the dollar in a way that very few people can. We talked a huge amount about why the dollar might no longer be serving either the U.S. or the world as the world's reserve currency. Yeah, so uh, the current monetary system has been in place since 1971, which is uh, that you know none of the currencies are pegged to anything other than uh, you know essentially that the dollar is kind of pegged to oil in a way uh, indirectly. But um, since over those 50 years, roughly, there have been three uh, super cycles of dollar strength and weakness. So the first one, it peaked in the mid uh, 1980s, uh, and then it had a long decline. Uh, the second one peaked uh, in 2002, and then it had a long decline. And then uh, this current one has been in a, a peak for uh, several years now, starting in uh, 2015. Uh, so that's kind of the the, the overall long-term cycle, and of course, there's different fluctuations each year, um, but those are the three very large uh, changes in the dollar. And every time the dollar has one of those massive spikes, uh, something breaks because uh, the whole system is, is levered to the dollar, and uh, the dollar dictates all the liquidity in the world uh, as far as um, trade and currencies go. So in the 1980s, uh, it broke some of the South American economies. Uh, in the late 90s, it broke some of the Asian uh, emerging markets, uh, and then recently, uh, it's you know it's impacted Turkey, it's impacted Argentina, and it's it's uh, slowed growth worldwide. Uh, and then in many ways, it also negatively impacts the United States. So, for example, if you chart uh, corporate profits in the United States and you, you overlay the dollar with it, uh, whenever the dollar is in one of those giant peaks, you said you generally see a long flat. Uh, kind of sideways growth in uh, corporate profits because they have trouble growing in dollar terms when the dollar is that strong. Finally, in this best of episode, I talked to Thomas Malinen uh, on May 21st. He is an economist out of Helsinki, uh, the head of a macro research firm, as well as a professor at the University of Helsinki. And we talked about why it might take dismantling the euro to preserve the European Union. Well, that would, of course, depend a lot, but there was actually a um, um, proposition from a German economist just published yesterday or today morning about that. Let's just, let's just let Italy leave and Germany pays them for leaving, gives a grant just, you know, that they, they can, you know, manage. And there are several scenarios how this could play out in, in each country, but they, there's all, there's, there has to be some defaults basically on the on the on the most indebted countries, and well, going country by country is not possible in this in this interview. But they um, and we don't. I haven't analyzed it in the in the, sure, sure, sure. In, But but the it would go fine if we would just you know support each other and and the. Uh, and we will we will most likely have a banking crisis. We just have to go through it. So it, it it will not be easy. It will be economically very difficult, but it would give us the possibility of a very fast recovery after the crisis. And that's what we are aiming here. And when countries re economies recover, cooperation also recovers. So it would be. Very important. Look into look in the future that uh, we get rid of the euro because it would 
most likely revive the economies of, of well all the all the suffering nations. All, only loser would be probably Germany, but she would be she will would be just fine. So that's it, guys. Let me know what you thought of this best of episode and be on the lookout for a ton of other great guests to come. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. So until we speak again, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.